So we've been preaching through the gospel of Luke. And as I said this afternoon, we're going to look at Luke 23, 26 to 49, talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. Most people, when they hear about the crucifixion of Jesus, focus on what the crucifixion did to Jesus, what happened to Jesus as he was crucified. And that's important to understand, but that's not Luke's focus. Luke's focus isn't on what was done to Jesus through the crucifixion. Luke's focus is on what Jesus did for us through the crucifixion. Very different focus, powerful focus. And that's what we're going to focus on this afternoon. And I'm praying that God will use this passage to prepare our hearts, deeply prepare us so that we can worship Jesus Christ by celebrating communion together so that we can worship him, adore him, surrender to him, delight in him, trust him, be assured by him, all the ways he loves to work through communion. So we're going to work our way through this passage by asking one big overarching question, and that is, what was Jesus doing during the hours of the crucifixion? What was he doing? As I studied this passage, I saw five things that Jesus is doing. First of all, Jesus shows compassion to the women of Jerusalem. Verses 26 through 31. Now here's the setting for this passage. Here's what's happened right up to this point in Luke. Jesus, as he had said would happen, had been arrested, had been betrayed, had been beaten by the Jewish temple guards, had been tried before Pilate, and then Pilate had him scourged, which involved 39 lashes, one less than they thought would probably kill a man. Pilate had him scourged, and then Pilate gave him over to the Jewish authorities to be crucified. Now the scourging and the beating would have left Jesus unable to carry the cross which explains what happens in verse 26. Look at verse 26. And as they led him, Jesus, away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him, Simon, the cross, to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him, there followed Jesus, a great multitude of the people and of women, who were mourning and lamenting for him. So picture what's happening. Jesus is leading the way. The one to be crucified always led the way to the place of crucifixion. Behind him was Simon carrying the cross, and behind Simon was a great multitude, including a large number of women who were mourning and lamenting, loudly crying, wailing over Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Verse 28, but turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Now see what's happening here. Jesus is already suffering terribly, and he's on his way to more suffering, the physical pain will be horrible, and what will be even more horrible is the emotional and the spiritual weight 
of being punished for sin. So he has all of this on him, thinking about him, but he, he turns to these women who are mourning and lamenting behind him. And he says, don't weep for me. Don't weep for me. Now, why not? It's because Jesus and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit had planned all of this from before creation. It's all going according to plan. It's because Jesus is going to save a vast multitude that no one can count from every nation, tongue, and tribe. That's what he's going to go do. It's because Jesus then will be raised from the dead and given all authority over heaven and earth. And it's because Jesus, through all of this, through all of this, Jesus is going to have the joy of bringing great glory to his father. Great joy of bringing glory to his father. And that's why Jesus says, don't weep for me. Don't. And then with great compassion, he says, but weep, weep for yourselves and for your children. Now why? It's because God's judgment is going to be poured out upon Jerusalem. Jesus isn't talking about the end of history. He's talking about a judgment that's going to come upon Jerusalem that these women and their children are going to face in their lifetimes. Look at how he describes it in verse 29. It says, For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. See, this suffering is going to be much harder for those who have children. Verse 30, Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us, protect us from this wrath. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now that last line is puzzling. I was helped by one commentary, which said, this is a, probably a well-known proverb. Something like this. If the heat burns green wood, damp green wood, if, if the heat burns this damp green wood, what will the heat do to wood when it's dry? That's the proverb, something like that. And the point is, if God's wrath crucifies Jesus who is innocent, what will his wrath do to Jerusalem who is guilty? Whoa. We all know what it did. 40 years later, AD 70, God had Rome conquer Jerusalem, break down the walls, tear down all the buildings. Temple was completely destroyed. Hundreds of thousands of its inhabitants were killed. Many, many more were taken away as slaves. It was horrifying what happened. So picture what's happening here with Jesus. He's already suffering, been beaten, scourged. He's on his way to the cross. He's facing all that suffering. And as he hears these women behind him, mourning and lamenting, his heart, with all that he's facing, his heart is stirred with compassion for them. He's concerned for them. 
He loves them. That's our Jesus. Strong, compassionate. That's our Jesus, showing compassion for the women of Jerusalem. That's the first thing Jesus does. Second, we see this love and compassion continuing. Jesus next asks God to forgive those that are crucifying him. Asks God to forgive those crucifying him. That's verses 32 to 34. This is amazing. Verse 32, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. So this is where the actual crucifixion takes place. Those four words, there they crucified him. Now Luke doesn't go into the details. One reason he wants to focus on what Jesus is doing, but also his readers would have known about crucifixion. They would have seen crucifixions. So let me explain what crucifixion involved briefly. Briefly, Jesus had already been scourged and he was going to have his wrists nailed to the cross beam and his feet nailed to the vertical beam and then be hung up to die. And in that position, the only way you could breathe was, would be pulling up on the nails that are in your wrists and pushing up on the nails that are in your feet. So you can imagine how painful that would have been. So they've just nailed Jesus to the cross. This has just happened and they've hung him up there to die and he's experiencing this. And what does Jesus do? Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. They know not what they do. Father, they're sinning. They've not owned up to the truth of who I am. They're willfully ignorant to who I am. The Lord, have mercy upon them and forgive them. And of course, any of those that Jesus was praying for, any of them who turned from their sin, owned up to the truth of who Jesus was and received Jesus as their savior, as their Lord, as their heart satisfying treasure, any, any of them who would have done that would have been completely forgiven for all of their sins, past, present, and future, reconciled to God, felt the guilt lift off of them and the presence of God filling them. That would have instantly happened to any of them because Jesus was dying to pay for sin. So see what's going on. See what's happening here. There is Jesus, God in the flesh, God in the flesh, and they're crucifying him, God in the flesh. He is suffering, paying for sin and rebellion. And as that's happening, he's caring for them. He's concerned for them. He's loving them. Listen, church, this is our Jesus. No one loves like Jesus. No one in history anywhere around the world has loved anywhere near as close as we see God's love shining through Jesus at this moment. 
This is our Jesus. This is his love. And because those of you who are trusting Jesus, because you're trusting Jesus, not only have all of your sins been forgiven, but we can read in the scriptures that we can abide in this love. We can abide, live in his love for us. We can be rooted and grounded in his unshakable love for us. We will have times where God pours his love into our hearts, filling us to overflowing. This is our Jesus. This is his love. And it's his love that we can know and be grounded upon and filled with and strengthened by. Some of you need to be strengthened with Jesus' love tonight. Right? That's why I'm so worried about this, or that's why I'm so discouraged about this. I need to trust his love. Trust his love. See it here and trust him. See Jesus' love. Third thing that Jesus does, he saves one of those crucified with him. I love this. Verse 35, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, supposedly. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, nails to the top beam or the vertical beam. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So notice people were scoffing at Jesus, mocking Jesus, railing at Jesus, which means blaspheming Jesus. They were mocking the idea that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the King of the Jews. Sure. Even the Romans got in on the acts, right? Made a little sign. <laughs> the king of the Jews will nail this up here. Okay. There's your king hanging on a cross. Some king you've got, Jewish people. And they were all calling on Jesus to show that he was the king, the Christ, the Messiah by saving himself. Save yourself. And he could have saved himself. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, I could appeal to the Father and he would send 12 legions of angels to deliver me. 72,000 angels. Like that. Jesus could have instantly saved himself. But if he would have saved himself, he would not have saved any of us. If he would have chosen to save himself, which he could have done, none of us would be saved. You would still be under the guilt of your sin. I would still be under the guilt of my sin. We would be facing an eternity of just, the just, righteous wrath of God forever. If he would have saved himself and not died on the cross. But Jesus did not save himself. Many people were mocking him, though, and calling upon him to do that. But one 
man was not mocking him. The other criminal crucified with Jesus, verse 40. But the other criminal who was there crucified next to Jesus, the other criminal rebuked the first criminal saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. See, something had happened to this criminal. He'd experienced God's saving power. God had changed his heart. So he saw, I need a savior. And Jesus is the savior. God had given him repentance. So he turning away in his heart from his sin. I don't want anything that's going to get between me and God. I want to turn from my sin. Jesus, free me from sin. Repentance. And God had given him faith. So he turned and he put his trust in Jesus as his savior, as his Lord, as his treasure. And he says, Jesus, remember me, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. Notice he knows Jesus is the king. Jesus has a kingdom. And he's asking Jesus to forgive him and to welcome him into his kingdom at the end of history. That's what he's asking Jesus to do. And how does Jesus answer? Verse 43. And he, Jesus, said to him, this criminal, truly I say to you, today, not at the end of history, today you will be with me in paradise. Now notice that word today. They will both die that day. Jesus and this criminal crucified next to him. Friday. They will both die that day. So that day, this criminal will be with Jesus in paradise. But how can that be? Think about it. This criminal, he was a criminal, right? He'd had a, a lifetime of wickedness culminating in some act that was so despicable that he was to be crucified for it, which was the worst punishment reserved for the worst criminals. So he's got a lifetime of wickedness, and he's got a little part of his life of trusting Jesus. So how can this little time period of trusting Jesus make up for the lifetime of wickedness? How can this little sliver of faith in Jesus pay God back for the wickedness that he's done? How is that possible? Answer, I hope you know the answer. It can't. It's not how it works. You all know that, right? Did you know that? Well, somebody, okay, we're all going to know it now. This is very important. And this is glorious news. Oh, this is amazing. That's not how we're saved. We are not saved by having our, our goodness outweigh our badness. That's impossible. We're saved by trusting Jesus to pay for all of our badness. All of it. The lifetime's worth of sin. We're trusting Jesus to be punished for all of that. That's what he does. All of our sin, past sin, 
present sin, future sin, all of our sin. And we're trusting Jesus' perfect sinlessness to cover us like a, like a cloak, like a coat. Completely forgiven and covered with Jesus' perfect sinlessness. That's what happens the moment you put your trust in Jesus Christ. A supernatural transformation. So this man who'd been trusting Jesus for how long? A few minutes at that point? Was completely forgiven for all of his sins. And that's why Jesus can say, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Not in purgatory, you'll be there today. You're you're not going to purgatory today. The Bible never talks about purgatory. This man has no more sin he's got to pay for. It was paid in full through the cross. Every bit of it. Complete forgiveness. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right to paradise. That day, that Friday. So see the glory of this. While Jesus is being crucified, he saves one of those being crucified with him. This criminal is in heaven right this moment. You're going to see him one day. Fourth, Jesus pays for the sins of all who trust him, tearing open the temple curtain. This is Glorious. Verses 44 to 45. It was now about the sixth hour, noon. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m., while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So from noon until 3 p.m., the sun's light did not shine in this region. It was dark, darkness. Now, how did that happen? I don't think it was because clouds suddenly came in. I don't think it was because there was an eclipse. The same God who created the sun, gave the sun light, can also cause the sun's light not to come upon a certain region of the world if he chooses to. Easy. It's not a hard thing for God to do. He made the sun. He rules the sun. He can tell the sun what to do and the sun will do it. That's how this happens. And so God decreed that that area would receive no light from the sun for three hours. And the point of this was to picture God's wrath against our sin. The reason I say that is because of the book of Amos, the Old Testament prophet Amos. Look at what he says in chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. I think all the people there would have had this verse in their minds as they see this happening at noon. Verse 9, Amos 8, verse 9. And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. The, the darkness over the earth is a picture of God's wrath against sin. And as people there saw the darkness, they would have thought about this passage from Isaiah. This is a picture of God's wrath against our sin. That's what they would have been seeing. Noon, darkness, Wait a minute, Amos chapter 8, this is a picture of God's wrath against our sin. 
And now look at what happens next. Verses 44 to 46. It was now about the sixth hour, noon. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m., when the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So Luke is telling us that at noon, everything goes dark. This is a picture of God's wrath against our sin. But then at three o'clock, the light returns. The curtain of the temple is torn in two and Jesus dies. So the darkness disappearing, the light returning shows that God's wrath has been poured out upon Jesus for all who trust him. The darkness disappearing, the, the wrath of God is over. It's gone for all those who put their trust in Jesus. It is finished. The penalty has been paid. And then Jesus dies right at that moment. The timing of this is amazing. But now why is the curtain torn in two? What's that about? The curtain was in the Jerusalem temple. It separated the Holy of Holies where God dwelt in his manifest presence, shining with glory. The place where only nobody could go in there. No human being could go in there except for one, the high priest. And only once a year could he go into the Holy of Holies. So that temple is representing the, the separation our sin causes between us and God. And this, this curtain was, I wrote this down, 18 meters high. It's like 60 feet, U.S., okay, 60 feet, sorry about that, but 18 meters high, that's, that's very tall, and nine meters wide. And it was a thick curtain, 72 twisted braids, each made up of 24 threads. So it was big, it was strong, and Matthew's gospel says it was torn from top to bottom. This is a miracle taking place. And just like the disappearing of the darkness being a picture of God's wrath against us, all paid for in Jesus. So the tearing of this curtain is a picture of how the barrier of sin has been removed so we can enter right into God's presence through faith in Jesus Christ and know God personally, really, intimately, powerfully. So for all who trust Jesus, the darkness of God's wrath has been replaced by the sunshine of his love. Okay? The curtain of sin has been torn so that the door is wide open for us to enter into his presence, know him as our Father, as our God. Glorious. And all this happened because Jesus paid for sin on the cross for all who trust him. Beautiful picture. That's what Jesus does. One last thing. Sixth. I read the verse already. Jesus commits his spirit into God's hands, trusting that he will be raised from the dead, and then he dies. That's verse 46. Let's read it again. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. See the timing of this? The darkness is gone. The payment was made. Sin's payment 
covered for all those who trust Christ. The temple curtain broken, access into God's presence secured. He can die. Time to die. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. He knows it's time. He knows sin's been paid for. He knows he's purchased salvation for a vast multitude of people that no one can count from every nation, tongue, and tribe. So he calls out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I'm entrusting myself to you, Father, to raise me from the dead. And when he said that, he breathed his last and he died. Jesus does. But Luke is not finished yet. He hasn't come to the climax of his story yet. How does Luke bring this story to a close? One last question, verses 47 to 49. Look at what Luke does. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place returned home beating their breasts with sorrow. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So the crowds left with sorrow and confusion beating their breasts with lamentation and mourning, not understanding what was happening. Those who knew Jesus stood away at a distance. They were watching, pondering, thinking about this, taking this all in. But notice the centurion. A centurion oversaw 100 soldiers. And as he watched all this happening, as he watched Jesus, he could see Jesus is innocent. Jesus is innocent. But notice that he doesn't respond to this innocent man being crucified with anger. He doesn't be furious at the injustice of this innocent person being crucified. You'd think that's how he'd respond. He was innocent, everybody. It's not a response. He praises God. Do you see that? He praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. Now, why would he praise God? It's because he's seeing that an innocent man is being crucified and he's understanding what that means, what God is doing through having Jesus, the son of God, be crucified. He's seeing something of what God has accomplished through Jesus. He's seeing something of what God did through Jesus as Jesus was being crucified. And so he praises God for what Jesus has done, this innocent man through the crucifixion. In other words, just as we've seen, he saw Jesus had shown compassion to the women of Jerusalem. He's asked God to forgive those who are crucifying him. He saved one of those who crucified him. He paid for the sins of all who trust him, tearing open the temple curtain and he's committed his spirit into God's hands, trusting that he's going to be raised from the dead. And then he died. That's our Jesus. Now the story doesn't end there. Next week, the resurrection. But for now, look at what our Jesus has done.
The resurrection isn't mostly about what others did to Jesus. The resurrection is mostly about what Jesus has done. I'm sorry, the crucifixion is not about what others have done to Jesus. The crucifixion is mostly about what Jesus has done for us. That's our Savior. That's our Lord. That's our Master, our King, our God, Jesus Christ. Let's worship Him now by partaking of communion together.